here's how we're going to begin. Directly below the warlord uh, is a massive horde of people filling uh, this valley, uh, every square inch of it. And as this warlord looks down upon this valley, seeing this phenomenon happen of this massive horde of people, he's greatly concerned. So he turns to his generals and says, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And, and then what he does next sends a shiver down the, the spines of the general. He summons the most famous and feared Voldemort of the day, the most dangerous druid of the time. He summons Balaam. Now, he summons him to cast a spell on these undesirables below him. He summons them to curse uh, the unwanted people below him. And so Balaam heads out to the meeting place as he's been summoned, and the warlord is a guy named Balak. And on his way, though, his donkey starts acting strangely. He starts turning this way and that, and he's getting really, really upset. He beats him every time he goes in the wrong direction, and then he just stops, frozen, like dead in his tracks. In fact, he even just falls to the ground, the donkey does, with Balaam on top of him, like he sees something, like he's absolutely terrified. Oh, there's great magic in this story, because the donkey does see something, but Balaam doesn't. And standing in the middle of the road is the angel of the Lord with his sword unsheathed blocking his way. This is when Harry Potter shows up because the donkey starts talking. The donkey says, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? Now you imagine Balaam stunned says, uh, no, right? Now, the Bible records what happens next and says this, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. Now, the rest of the story goes like this. Three times Balaam goes up to curse these undesirables, and three times when he opens his mouth to curse them, he blesses them. But the story doesn't end there. Eventually, Balaam does curse Israel. Eventually, he does cast a spell on them, and you're asking like a good student of the Scriptures, how though, Jeff? And I'm glad you asked, because he does this by the most powerful spell there is in the world. False teaching. Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. Revelation of the Christ, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there 
who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practiced sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes just like you opened Balaam's eyes, just like you made a donkey talk. Uh, You are the greater magic. And it's your magic that does the impossible. So would you shine? Would you fill? Would you give clarity to the mind? Realness to our hearts? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Ephesus is the good church. Test. Smyrna is the suffering church. Pergamon is the false teaching church. Look at verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols, practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus is using the image of what we just looked at, the story of Balaam. To do what? To show the church at Pergamon, to show them that they've been, as Paul would say, bewitched by false doctrine, that false doctrine has cast a powerful spell on them. Jesus is saying to them, wake up, church, you're under a curse. You have a powerful spell that has just seduced you. It has cast its its power over you. But who's responsible for this? Uh, Who's doing this false teaching? Who are these false teachers? Look at verse 15. It's real clear. The Nicolaitans. Now, the early church fathers uh, believed that the Nicolaitans were the disciples of Nicholas of Antioch. Remember in Acts 6, 5, there were seven folks that were appointed to do practical ministry to go with the word ministry, and those were the first deacons, and one of them was this Nicholas, which makes sense because how does you need credibility for even false teaching to get a hearing? I mean, if it's really creepy and it's really out there, except for the weirdos and the kooks, nobody listens to it. But if it has some credibility, you would think, I mean, something like this, well, I studied under Calvin, right? My spiritual mentor was Jonathan Edwards. (laughs) Who's going to argue with that? Or I went to Westminster, DTS, RTS, Gordon, Trinity, Fuller, Regent, and Truett, all at the same time. That sounds a lot better than saying, we studied under Pelagius, (laughs) right? And my spiritual mentor was antinomian. And I went to the school of self-salvation and law righteousness. Earlier in his message to Ephesus, Jesus says to the Nicolaitans this, they call themselves apostles, but they are not. And that's real key because false teachers always lend themselves. They always appoint themselves to be teachers and leaders in the church. They're (laughs) self-appointed. They're not God-appointed. They're not church-appointed. You see that? Also, calling yourself an an apostle implies a lot of pride. There's a lot of bullying involved in something like that. If you're self-appointed, you're a bully. 
You say things like this, if you don't believe like me, live like me, I'm going to withhold acceptance and love from you. I'm going to withhold my re- a relationship with you if you don't think like I think, if you don't believe like I believe, if you don't live like I live. And it might be good stuff. In fact, Isaiah says they do things like this. They say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. <laughs> They're always super saints, usually. And here's my personal favorite. Um, how dare you disagree with me? I'll show you. I'll get you. I'll control you. And then lastly, calling yourself an apostle implies slander. So what do you got to do? Well, you got to go to the appointed teachers and leaders and slander them. You got to slander the appointed teaching of the church, biblical teaching. You have to slander it. Luther says it this way from his personal ministry experience. A man may labor half a score of years before he gets some little church to be rightly and religiously ordered. So this, he's picturing from personal experience a man planning a church, a man working in a church, and God brings, starts reaching people, renewing people, brings them together, and, and it's become almost like what the pastor and the church believed it would be and hoped it would be. It's a gospel-driven church. It's a reformational church built around grace, built around good news, not good advice, all right? And when it is so ordered, there creeps in some mad brain, yea, a very unlearned idiot who can do nothing else but speak slanderously and spitefully against sincere preachers of the word, and he in one moment overthrows it all. Now, this one's for free. If you ever want to get a false teacher, like you want to unhinge them, if you ever want to treat a a, a spiritual bully, if you ever want to get to them, like just unhinge them, uh, just call them a heretic. Say, man, you're a Pelagian, you're an antinomian. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? And if you don't know, God bless you, I'm so glad you don't know. You moralists. You know why? Because they can't, they'll blow a gasket because they can't handle the disrespect they themselves dish out. That's a real trick with false teachers and false teaching. If you just kind of punch back, they blow a gasket. And you go, okay. But why are false teachers and false teaching so bewitching? Why are they so luring? Why are they so seductive? Why do we follow such creepy teaching? Look at verse 13. Jesus mentions primal evil here twice. Listen, listen what he says. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now drop to the last sentence, the last phrase in that sentence, where Satan dwells. Satan is bookending the first personal message to the church. Why? For emphasis. In other words, here's the point. Wherever there are lives, wherever there's false teaching, Satan is actively present. Jesus is saying, wherever there are lies, wherever there is false teaching, Satan's enthroned. He's active. He's present. So that's why when Jesus walked this earth, he said, listen, when when Satan speaks, he's the father of lies. And this means that he doesn't speak Swahili. He doesn't speak English. He doesn't speak Chinese. He speaks the language called lies. And it also means that if you take one drop of any lie and false teaching, one drop, any grammatical, literary drop 
of a proposition of false teaching, the headwaters, the source, the origin of it is primal evil. That's why it's so bewitching. That's why false teaching is so powerful. That's why it's so seductive, right? Because primal evil is actively present. But there's another reason why false teachers and false teaching are so bewitching and why people follow creepy teaching, why we do. Look at verse 14. You have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Listen, you stumble over a stumbling block because both of you are on the same path. No one stumbles over a stumbling block that's not on their path. In other words, Balaam's teaching didn't create the idolatry or create the sexual immorality. Balaam's teaching revealed, revealed it revealed that it's already there. In other words, Balaam's teaching came to Israelite hearts and poured gasoline or poured fuel on already existing fires in their hearts. False teaching is so powerful because it fuels already existing fires in the human heart. And the first one is the the fire of idols. That's why in verse 14 it says, This is why we eat food sacrificed to idols. Or to say the same thing, it's saying idols from a different angle. It's tackling idols. It's saying the same thing. It's the same fire, just giving you another aspect. One diamond, just another cut. Here it is. It fuels the fire of our desires. Verse 14, we practice sexual immorality. So moralism is more commonly known as what? Legalism. Thank you. It's theologically known as work salvation or self-righteousness or self-justification, or we kind of call it like self-salvation. We call it achievement righteousness instead of received righteousness. We call it good advice, not good news. Moralism doesn't just capture you. It doesn't just grab your parenting. It doesn't just get a hold of your doctrine. It doesn't just work its way into your home. It doesn't just tweak how you relate to money or how you relate to your sexuality or how you relate to gender or how you relate to school or how you relate to athletics. It doesn't get into your success and your failure. Moralism doesn't just capture us because someone teaches it. Moralism catches us and captures us because it's already in our heart. We need to be our own Savior. And that primal, original sin is in every human heart. And all false teaching does is add fuel to this already existing Relativism, more theologically known as antinomianism, or believe any way you want, or it's more like this. Listen, we act like we're a creator, and we say, I'm going to create my life ex nihilo, out of nothing, so I'm going to create my happiness. I'm going to create my identity. I'm going to create my sexuality. I'm going to create the way I think money should be handled. I'm going to create the way I 
I want to be perceived. I'm going to create my reality. Whatever is true is whatever I say it is. Whatever is, is good and happy and flourishing is whatever I feel it to be and experience to be. I will create it. That's what antinomianism is. That's what relativism is. Now, that doesn't just capture us. It doesn't just capture our theology. It doesn't work its way into our homes. It doesn't get a hold of our parenting. It doesn't get a hold of the way we view sex. It doesn't get a hold of the way we view anything just because someone teaches it. Relativism captures us because it's already existing in our heart. The moment that Adam and Eve said, I want that. It's pleasing to me. Part of that original sin is in every human heart. The desires of self already exist in you. False teaching comes along and fuels an already existing fire. So maybe, literally, it's sexual immorality. Maybe that's the desire. Maybe that's what the text is specifically talking about. The image could apply to that. The image could apply to all desires in the human heart. And it's not just having the desire, it's actually referring to what's called a mega-desire, an epi-desire, an over-desire, a desire that has grown to the extent that this desire says, I can meet all your needs like God can, and that's why it's called an idol, just from a different angle. It's something or someone that we look to to be for us what only God can be for us. That's what an idol is, that's what one of these desires are. So let's say... It's literal sexual immorality. So a false teaching comes along, and it feels like this. And this is from a, a, a New Testament scholar. Look, the body is not that big a deal. Here's the false teaching. Let's say we have that mega desire for sexual immorality. In other words, we have a desire for sexual intimacy and pleasure outside the wonder of a one-man, one-woman marriage, okay? So false teaching comes along and says, look, the body's not that big a deal. After all, it's only a collection of biological material. Ultimately, you will be liberated from bodily existence so that what you do with your eyes and your body now doesn't really matter. Your soul is all that matters. There's some false teaching, okay? So what happens is New Testament scholar Darrow Johnson points out this line of reasoning, though, is not in line with reality. It's out of sync with reality. And if it's out of sync with reality, it's going to hurt you. It's like saying, I just, you know, you're on top of a five-story building and you say to everyone involved and you try to convince the person closest to you, I just don't think gravity exists. I just don't believe in it. In fact, I say, no gravity. And some of you recall, I did this to a kid at Brown University who was trying to have this conversation with me because he said, listen, Jeff, look out here. I was having an evangelistic conversation with him when I was in campus ministry, and he said, I say, the, what do you say the color of the grass is? I said, well, it's green. He says, oh, I say it's orange. I said, really? You say it's orange? He goes, yeah, I created it to be orange. I say it's what I say it is. I said, that's fair. He was kind of a tweaky, dweeby kind of guy, and I said, well, you know what? What if I just grabbed you and took you up to the top of this dorm and held you over the top of the dorm and said, I don't think gravity exists. I think it's suspended for people like me. What would you say? He got really scared. He, thought, he probably thought I was one of those religious quacks. But after having 10 out of 10 conversations with people with that same worldview, I had enough, right? So he continues, back to Daryl Johnson, the body in the New Testament is not only the material form, it is also the imperishable form of the personality, the real self, the whole person. 
The fact is, I do not have a body. I am a body. This is reality. False teaching doesn't deal with reality. This is reality. My body is not a house or a prison for my real self. My body is my real self. Therefore, what I do with my body, I do with me, my very being. What I do with my body, I do to me. My body may be my outer self, and my soul may be my inner self, but both are the same self. Now, don't miss this connection. Therefore, far more than biology is involved in any sex act. The act involves the body, the real self, the very essence of a person's being, which is why two people seldom feel the same way toward each other afterward. They have shared more than biology. They have shared their very soul. They have shared their very persons. The reality of the act may feel unfelt and it may feel unnoticed by them, but reality is it united them, body and soul to each other. This is reality. And false teaching never deals with reality. It only goes to Disney World. It makes all kinds of, and Disney World's a great place. It makes all kinds of, because there are a lot of kids here that love Disney World. I love Disney World. I'm not saying Disney World is a bad place. It's a wonderful place. <laughs> but here's the deal. False teaching comes along. And that's why it was so tricky what Balaam did. He couldn't directly curse them. He couldn't directly cast a spell on them. So what he did is he knew the Israelite human heart. And he came along and he sprinkled false teaching on already existing fires in the human heart. He knew the human heart. And that's how they were cursed. Because when you don't live in reality, you're cursed. It's a decreative reality, right? Now, there are two questions left for the false teachers in this passage. So, and it's fascinating that both questions have the same answer. So see if you can find it. So what's the church supposed to do with false teaching when it finds it taking root in a church? So let's say false teaching and false teachers get into a redeemer. What are we supposed to do? Here's the answer according to this text. Cut it out of the church. Verse 12, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Look at verse 16. Therefore repent. If you don't, I will come to you soon and war against them, them, with the sword of my mouth. The image of the sword in the Bible and then the image of the sword in the first image of Jesus is his words, is his voice, is the gospel. It's the sword of the Spirit. If Paul was here, he'd say the words of Jesus, the words of the Bible, the Scripture are the sword of the Spirit. It has the, the power to, to expose lies. It has the sharpness to slice into lies and judge them because that's the emphasis here, judging them, discerning them, cutting into them, exposing them, and cutting them out. If Paul was here, he'd say, silence false teaching. Silence it. Get rid of it. Don't tolerate it in your midst. That's what the call is for them. Um. There's also an implication here of church discipline, but that's for another time. 
that's not this sermon. For now, whenever false teachers and false teaching infest the church, Jesus is saying to the church, cut it out. Cut it out with the scriptures. Cut it out with truth. Cut it out with reality. Cut it out with my words. Silence it with truth. Second question, what about the already existing fires in us? I mean, we already have existing fires in us. We have original sin in us. So I'm walking around with fires of idolatry and fires of mega desires, and so are you. What are we supposed to do? Same answer. Do you notice this? Look at verse 12. Remember, you have the initial vision that's given of Jesus, and then each particular aspects of that vision is applied to a church. Well, guess what's applied to this church? Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamon write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says it this way, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and joints and marrow. The marrow is the innermost part of the bone. The scriptures goes right to the center of your very being. It goes right to the center of our idolatry. It goes down to the bottom of the human heart where our desires are. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Only the word of God can reach the bottom of your heart and heal it. That's the point. Only good news, Jesus' words, can reach the bottom of your heart change it, transform it, heal it, free you to actually be you. Notice how the Word of God does it in this passage. Notice how it hits the bottom of the heart to heal it here. Verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. That's referring to another Old Testament story when the Israelites are going out, on, they're on a wilderness, they don't have food, God provides for their food, he gives them quail, he gives them real food, you know, like kind of the natural food, they grumble and complain, and he's so gracious, he gives them what's called manna, and manna literally means spiritual food. It's food from above, it's supernatural food. Hidden manna is heavenly food, and it's the only food that can satisfy the human heart. It's the only food that fills a heart. It's the only food that satiates a heart. It's the only food that comes to these massive, overwhelming, mega desires in our soul and says, I alone can feed you and fill you. The picture here is idolatry says, eat my food. My food will satisfy you. And Jesus says, I'm the manna. I'm food from above. I was made for your soul. And I alone can fill it. I alone can satisfy it. I alone can reach it. I alone can heal it. I alone can renew it. I alone. That's the picture here. There's one more. Do you see it? Verse 17. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Uh, if you're from Minnesota, you know Garrison Keillor. So my family knows Garrison Keillor. Anybody else know Garrison Keillor? He's gotten pretty popular. Okay. Uh, he's a master storyteller and radio personality. He once said for him, quote, there was no greater childhood pain than being chosen last for the baseball teams. <laughs> you know how it goes. He paints a beautiful picture. He says there are always two captains. 
and, in, and it would get down to the last, quote, grudging choices, right? You'd have the slow kid would go to be a catcher. The kid that can't catch would go to right field because no balls are hitting right field. And the last ones, those two, the slow kid and the kid that can't catch, they were given out like two, done two at a time. You and you. <laughs> you and you. Slow kid, can't catch kid, right field. And then there were the leftovers. The five or six kids that are out there just eyes like this, wondering what team they're going to be on and wondering why nobody picks them, right? And Keeler says, the leftovers are treated like handicaps. It's like this. I'll take him, but you've got to take him. If I take this guy, you've got to take that guy. Right? Keeler says, just once, I'd like Daryl to pick me first and say, him! I want him! I want the skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes. You, come on! But I've never been chosen like that. I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. Jesus comes up to you with a white rock and he says, Here, I want you. I want you with everything I've got. I just passed through the flaming sword that keeps you out of the garden, and the only way in is by death, and I just passed through death to get you. I want you. Jesus. 